Hi, I'm Igor from Brussels, and I talk here about how to be a TEDx coach for speakers and also how to create a perfect TEDx talk. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode. You've got me, Mr. Ryan Foland here, and today we are talking with Igor Chelukovich. Is that about right? It's about right. It's Chelikovic. Chelikovic. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I got that on two tries, not three, so that's great. Well, Igor, welcome to the show, and we are really excited to talk with you today about your story, about how you got into a position of working with TEDx speakers all the way from Brussels to San Francisco. And we're going to dive into your tips. We'll probably pretend that I have a TEDx talk coming up, which I actually do. And we'll see if we can get the best information from you on how to make that TEDx talk the best ever. And then I want to pick your brain on how speakers that have amazing ideas can get noticed by the different event organizers around the world for those TEDx events. So let's first start with basically your history. Like, where did you come from? Where are you going? What do you love to do? And how did it bring you to helping speakers communicate ideas that are worth spreading? That's a lot of questions in, uh, <laughs> in the, <laughs> the right from the bat. Yeah, well, exactly. We, we come in hot here. So just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your history? Yeah, I come from um, from the former Yugoslavia. I was born in, uh, in, in the former country that no longer exists. And I was moving ever ever since. So basically, when I was 18, I moved away from Serbia and I went to study in Italy. I studied political science, which was something that I was interested in at the time. And then ever since I finished my studies, I never worked in political science per se. And then there was quite a bit of parentheses in between of me coming to Brussels. But ever since I came to Brussels, I heard about this thing, TEDx. And then I saw that there was a first TEDx event in 2009 being organized in TEDx Brussels. It was one of the first actually events globally ever being organized because the TEDx license, the TEDx uh, as such as a program started in 2009. And then I applied to become a volunteer in that year and it kind of changed my life in multiple ways. And it, I started to evolve both professionally and personally from that point on. So it kind of shown as, let's say, a turning point towards so many new experiences back in 2009. What was that experience for you? What was it specifically about that event that, uh, that sort of changed your life? What was an example of, of the life changing that you felt at that time? Well, I just joined the whole new world of Brussels, of the international institutions, and I was a trainee back then. I wasn't particularly good in public speaking. I wasn't particularly good in event organizing, but as a volunteer there, I went the extra mile. I showed the organizers that I am willing to do whatever it takes and not to be just a lazy volunteer doing only what is necessary to be there for a free ticket. And I think the organizers noticed that. So they gave me a bigger responsibility the next year and then the next year. And throughout these years of being involved with TEDx, not only you can learn event organization and how, how to motivate volunteers and all of that, uh, all of those things, but in the end, I also ended up being a speaker coach for the speakers at the event, which was a totally different experience where you also learn a lot. As a kid, were you a very talkative person? Did you ever really identify as a speaker? Or was it more that you had this natural transition into 
being an audience member, which becomes an amazing coach? I always uh, like to speak a little bit, but when I was a kid, I wasn't very much extrovert. So I'm kind of an introvert person that if I prepare well for the talk, I, I can give, let's say, a decent, decent talk. But I think what it takes to be a coach, at least in my case, is the empathy towards the speaker. So to really be a listener and to really understand what the speaker wants to communicate in the talk itself. And that's why I like TEDx as a format so much, because it really makes a speaker focus on one specific idea instead of telling its life story. And that format really captivated me a lot. And then by traveling to all the other TEDx events and some TED conferences, I've been exposed to so many different speakers, so many different people that did so many different and amazing things that I've learned from them how to kind of craft a good talk. Now, from a coaching perspective, were you ever involved in athletics? Were you ever a coach in any type of sport or anything? No, not really. But I've tried several sports myself. <laughs> right. And then it, it never lasted very long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's an interesting analogy between sports and speaking. And, you know, there's more than just one connection when it comes to that. And sometimes the best coach isn't necessarily the best player. But being able to take an outside perspective and uh, give some honest feedback, I think that that is definitely something that's happened to you in your experience. And I think that's a, a valuable and unique perspective to go from. So give us a little bit of a background on these different events. You said you've gone to the main conference, you're working with Brussels, and then you also had mentioned offline that you worked with San Francisco. Yeah, the people that I worked with here in Brussels are seasoned entrepreneurs that build up companies and always have some crazy ideas. And I really like uh, hanging out with them. But they moved from Brussels some four years ago, maybe even five years ago, to the Silicon Valley to pursue new ideas in the, in the medtech industry. But ever since they moved to San Francisco, still back then, they kept the TEDx Brussels license for a year or two. So I continued working with, with them here. And then I still continued with TEDx Brussels for the past two years without them. But when they moved to San Francisco, they started the TEDx San Francisco. So let's say they worked well with me in Brussels and they uh, gave me their trust also in San Francisco with some also very important names of people to, to work there and to hear them out and to, and to help them with their, with their talks. So that's how I got in touch with the, the whole TEDx San Francisco community. Very cool. And you've been to the main TED conference as well? I haven't been to the main one in Vancouver, but I've been to this conference that takes place, that took place before. Now no, it's no longer happening. The TED Active, which is kind of a parallel conference to TED conference, also has limited amount of people that can attend. And it's basically a conference on which you watch the simulcast of the main event. And you have lots of, lots of workshops, lots of activities of, offline with the people that are attending. Gotcha. And it's a mix of people that usually go to TEDs, but like a bit more active style of a conference, or TEDx organizers, or translators, or other people that are involved in the TED community. Now, the TED and the TEDx community has really just blossomed in the last few years. Why do you think it is that they've become so popular and it's become something that a lot of people go to as a default when they need some inspiration or they need learning. Is there anything that you can think of? Like, what is it that has made TEDx so popular uh, just from your firsthand experience? I think it depends if you're a first comer or let's say a second or a third comer. For me, I think for first comers, what really attracts people is the brand itself and the, the expectation they will see something that they see online. So let, let's say the similar quality of talks. But for the second and third comer, whether they have had good or bad experiences at a TEDx conference doesn't really matter. I think what brings them back is 
not really the talks, but mostly the offline engagement at the conference. I mean, you go there for the talks, but I think the offline engagement in breaks and the quality of audience members you can, you can encounter is priceless because TEDx conferences don't attract only one type of people in any, anywhere in the world. It always attracts people from totally different groups of society, from medical people to technicians, to some engineers, to some journalists, to whomever. And I think this mix is, is really something that is interesting to, to people when they plan to attend. Do you have any particular favorite TED or TEDx talks, if you had one, two, or three, that everybody who is listening should go and check out? Well, I watched quite a few, so it's now difficult from the top of my mind to, to name several. But let's say one that really strikes me is Benjamin Zander. So Benjamin, Z-A-N-D-E-R. So he's a composer, and his pitch is basically he's going to make everyone fall in love with classical music. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've seen that one. That one's great, yeah. And I mean, it's his personality that is in, in that talk very much all over the place. And that's why it works. And he's not shy of sharing his idea. And he's very clear about what he wants to achieve with the talk. And that's what I like about the talk. It's very much an example of a, of a TED talk that works as it should. Because he could have had a talk about, oh, classical music is very important. And, you know, I do classical music. And that's it. But no, he had a very concrete thing. You know, he wants everybody to fall in love with classical music, not 10%, 20%. And that's what I really captured from his talk. Yeah. And I, I remember he was like very, his personality, like you said, like he actually got into the audience, right? I mean, he's playing the piano. He got into the audience. It's a really interactive one from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. There are other talks and uh, huh, let's say from TEDx Brussels, then there might also be, I have to remember now, I'm not, I, I, my brain is a bit, is a bit frozen now to try to remember all these talks. But for example, there's a talk of, of a friend of mine that, that, that went to speak in a university event. That is also a very good talk because it tackles a point that people want to hear about. And it's about how to travel the world with almost no money. And it's now in the top 50 of the most watched TEDx talks of all times. It has over 4 million views and it was recorded at a small university event. And you know what? I've actually, I've interviewed him on the World of Speakers. So I know exactly who you're talking about. Oh, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a great one. No, he's a great guy. It was a fun talk to talk to. Yeah. So you've had a lot of, if not more exposure than most to the TED and the TEDx community, and it's led you to becoming a TEDx coach. So maybe describe to people, what is a TEDx coach? Like what is it that you do? And then I'm going to pick your brain and we are going to pull amazing insights and information for people who are aspiring TEDx speakers or existing TEDx speakers on how they can deliver the best talk ever. So what is a TEDx coach? And maybe describe that process that you go through with someone. In my experience, a TEDx coach is someone who approaches the speaker at the right time. Basically, the organizer or let's say the curator, they select the speakers. And me as a coach, I don't have a say on who the speaker will be, but I do have a say on what the speaker will focus on. So let's say my task is not to tell the speaker what the speaker should talk about, but it's kind of to put a mirror to the speaker to say, okay, you, the speaker, tell me, what do you really care about? And then if I feel that we are not right exactly there where I think the talk might, might be very successful, then I just tell the speaker, okay, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about what is it, the most exciting thing that you do. So kind of the process is uh, talk to the person, try to try to get him out of his preconceived ideas on how the talk should look like and try to maybe pin down something else that the speaker maybe hasn't even thought about. And that process goes in such a way that once we nail down on what the idea is, 
then we start developing the, let's say the narrative or the structure of the talk. And then we go through the whole, how do we find the nice stories to tell? How do we find a way to make a nice uh, punchline uh, somewhere in the talk? And also how do you start? How do you end the talk? Like there are all these bits and pieces that are, that are important to kind of craft something that is powerful that actually can make a, make somebody remember the talk when they have seen it, whether it's 18 minutes or 12 minutes. So the process goes basically from the initial stage of just getting to know each other, getting to, let's say, gain the trust of the speaker so that they know who I am and that I know, I know who they are. Then I give them some homework because in the end, it should be the speaker always crafting the talk. I'm never supposed to craft the talk for them because they need to feel comfortable with the thing they're going to say. And then we do the several feedback loops in which I comment or I ask them further questions to, for them to clarify why they want to say certain things and not others and so on and so forth. All right. So I was taking some notes there and I'm going to challenge us to unpack this. So just so I get this straight, because I want to get this outline. You first build trust as a coach. Yeah. Secondly, you help them solidify, clarify, crystallize that core idea. Yeah. Then you mentioned you work on the narrative. Then from the narrative comes the structure. And after the structure, you were trying to figure out how to incorporate storytelling. And then you can either go back or figure out those punchlines, maybe to create some humor or some connectivity with the audience. And then it, it's interesting. You said that you figure out how to start and finish almost at the end. So maybe you build it and then, and then the beginning and the end formulates from that. Is that a pretty decent recall of your structure there? Yeah. I mean, some speakers actually have a very clear idea on how they want to start or how they want to end. But also at the same time, I've seen speakers that are so good in what they are saying, that it doesn't really matter how they start or how they end. <laughs> Honestly, I've seen talks in which I was blown away by the whole content and by the talk. And I, I never would have said to the guy, like, look, no, you really have to start in this way because they just don't feel comfortable. So they started in, the, in their own way and maybe they ended with a bit more punchy ending. I would always, if the speaker had to pick between, let's say, thinking about the ending or thinking about the beginning, I would always say, think about the ending because... Usually the one of the pitfalls in this process is that people cannot know how to end. So they just continue talking and just talking and talking, developing new arguments when the talk should, is, is, is supposed to end. Right. Okay. So, so let's go through and let's break down and spend a couple minutes on each one of these. So as a coach, when you're building trust, are there certain activities that you do to build trust? Uh, are there any kind of like tactics that you use or is it literally just sort of bonding with them? How do you gain that trust as a coach with your speaker when you start? It's really personal in the sense that it depends on the other person, who the other person is. Okay. Most of the coaching I did, for example, recently with uh, San Francisco was, was online because I wasn't there physically the whole time. Oh, okay. I was there only one week before the event. So I did some of the on-site coaching, let's say last minute. Okay. But most of the work was done online. So what I usually do is if I see that the person actually has some time to talk to me, we start talking informally about other things so that they get to know me, they get to know how I know the organizers and how I know TEDx. I also try to show them that it's not my first time I'm coaching someone so that they feel a bit more comfortable. And also that whatever we say stays between us because sometimes speakers are hesitant sharing or opening up to an unknown person, which is totally understandable. So when you do it online, you have to be also very careful because there are other speakers that are, let's say, CEOs of very important companies, and they don't really have a lot of free time. 
So I cannot really go into bonding or creating trust with people like that. I have to be very respectful of their time. And in that sense, when that kind of person comes, I try to, let's say, cut down that part of getting to know each other. And we just jump straight into the, into the mix of uh, talking about the talk. All right. So let's jump into that concept of the idea, right? For TEDx in general, it seems as though its focus is on one idea, right? So how do you help that speaker narrow down the focus and not get distracted with too many different topics? Do you really focus and and make sure that they only have one core concept that they're trying to get across? Well, that's what I try. (laughs) It doesn't always always succeed. Uh, There are speakers that are very difficult to convince that the one idea approach is good. Okay. So it's not just me telling them like, look, it's one idea. I mean, at the end of the day, if the speaker goes on stage and they want to do their own thing, I cannot tell them, don't do it. Right. (laughs) Only the curator in the end can say, look, if uh, you don't listen to like really the basic, basic rules and you you totally go off topic, then maybe we don't put your video online. But I mean, it's really, let's say, a very harsh scenario in which something like that can happen. What I usually try to do is I tell them that if you focus on one idea and your talk is something that people haven't heard yet, so you'll hear something very specific, let's say, I don't know, let's talk about how volcanoes in some specific regions affect uh, climate change or whatever, something that hasn't been heard too many times. If you're that specific, then the whole talk has a much better chance of getting more views and being more more popular. Or it has more chance of getting uh, on TED.com because TED.com doesn't want to replicate talks that have already been talked about so many times. And there are many speakers that, are, that just want to replicate a talk that already exists. They just want to do maybe a similar talk to what, what they have done before, or they just want to copy somebody else that already talked about the same topic, which doesn't really add a lot of value when you think about a talk as something, as a media that is online. Maybe on the event itself, that talk can be very well received by the audience, and that's fine. But at the events where I coach, like uh, TEDx San Francisco, we really try to get something new every single time. And I think that's the best argument I have, is if you have something new, if you have something specific, the better chances you have of your idea getting further. And so if you have multiple ideas, that one unique idea might get lost or overlooked or... If you have multiple ideas and not all of them are unique, then you're not going to be appealing to the TED, sort of the TED gods of sharing that information with the world. I like that. Not only the TED gods, I mean, because also you have the audience that has certain expectations. Me as an audience member, when I go and go to TED.com, I have an expectation that I'm going to hear one idea from the talk. And I want to go, but okay, I watched the talk. I want to know one thing. Like, so what do I have in my head now from this talk? What have I learned? And then if I want to dive more deeply into the topic, I know where to go. But I don't want to go just to the talk that is just funny. There are talks like that that are maybe just, you know, stand-up comedy or that don't maybe have one, let's say, thread that runs through the entire talk. And it's fine. It's entertaining. But it's entertaining on the offline event. On the online, I'm not sure how successful that can be. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I love this idea of just focusing on the one. But I can see how speakers come in with multiple ideas and having a coach to basically narrow them down to that, that's a lot of value because I think it's a short amount of time. And if you pack too much information, I know there are some talks that I get overloaded with and whatnot. So let's talk about the narrative. When you say working on the narrative, are there certain, um, and you also mentioned structure, is there certain 
narrative or structure that you see works? Is it on a case-by-case basis? Tell me about how you work with someone on their structure. So it's really on a case-by-case because there is no one way to set up an appealing structure in a talk because some people are more storytellers. Other people are more, let's say, logical. So they try to organize their information in a very logical manner, like, you know, let's say in the threes and threes and threes, while other people are just very emotional talkers. So they're storytellers, but with lots of emotions. So there are all these different categories of speakers, and it's difficult for me to tell them, like, look, this is a structure you need to obey by, and then the talk will be noticed. Still, there are some tricks, especially if you're, let's say, not a seasoned speaker. I think the whole thing about dividing the talk into, let's say, three parts, and then each of the three parts into other three parts, it's an, those rules of three is a good rule for you to remember what you need to talk about. And also it's a good rule for the talk to be easily followed. That way you know that you need to dedicate a certain amount of time to each of the three parts and that it's not too, let's say, imbalanced. Because some talks actually try to fo- maybe even divide it into three parts and then they overestimate the importance of the middle part or of the uh, beginning and then they just overlook the third part and it doesn't feel, doesn't feel right. So the structure is really trying to understand what the idea is and then seeing from the idea how many arguments can be put in there. Is it scientific arguments? Is it more stories? And based on that, then you, you craft a structure and it, it just follows from that first initial assessment of what, what's the core idea. Now, one of the things about TEDx, which I believe is great, is the limitation on time. It has to be 18 minutes or less. Yeah. But I've seen some as short as five or seven minutes, all the way up to like, you know, 17 point nine, nine minutes or whatever. Is there a certain time frame that you think works? Is it again, a case by case basis, but what can you tell us about strategy when it comes to how long or short your talk should be? The timing is, is a big discussion in the TEDx community. I mean, everybody has its own view on the, on this, (laughs) but as you say, like there are some talks that are like three minutes or five minutes. And actually when I look at those talks, I really like them. There are really talks that, that are engaging, that are well thought through usually. Because when you have to only three minutes to share something, then you really narrow it down narrow it down to the essentials. You don't put anything extra. Everything that has been superfluous has been taken away. And that's what I like about the three-minute talks. What I usually do and what I did in the past two years in TEDx Brussels when I was co-curating the event, so I was also selecting the speakers and inviting them to speak, I gave them all 12 minutes with some exceptions of being maybe a little bit less. But let's say... The 12th minute is what I consider to be enough time to deliver an idea, one idea, whatever it is, and still without going too much into depth, but also without allowing the speaker to add non-important elements into the talk. Then again, is it an ideal length? I don't think so. I think there are speakers that are able easily to do 18 minutes without boring the audience and also still conveying the idea and still supporting it. But it's not easy to find speakers like that all the time. So you can find some speakers with which you can feel totally comfortable giving 18 minutes, while with others, maybe you give nine. And I think that's what makes the TEDx event dynamic. If you have different lengths of talks during the day, for the audience, it's very pleasing to listen to that. Otherwise, if every talk would be 18 minutes and you have to go through the entire day of talks, you get totally dead, brain dead by the end of the day. Because maybe you like one talk, but you don't like the other one. But when they are shorter and longer, a mix... It's good because then you go quicker through the entire day and it's more, let's say, interactive. Yeah, less people fall asleep <laughs> with ideas that, that put them to sleep. 
That's interesting. So I, I've done two TEDx talks and I'm actually geared to do my third here. So depending on when somebody's listening to that, the third one has in, either been done or not. But the time is something that I'm really looking at, mm-hmm. reverse engineering the content into it. And that 12 minute, I think I'm shooting for my first two were definitely over 12. But I like the idea of getting rid of the non crucial information, because really, the talk is set up not as a big keynote. It's like, get, you know, let's teach the audience something that is going to totally wow them and make them remember, but also have them share the idea with other people. I think that's the cure to uh, spreadability is succinctness to some extent. Yeah. So let's talk about storytelling, because I know storytelling is a huge part of TEDx talks. And a lot of the personal stories are what make the talk so compelling. So how do you work with someone on pulling the stories out, identifying the stories? Talk to me about your storytelling coaching. So storytelling for me is, let's say there are two types of storytelling when the speaker goes on stage. And one is a speaker that is very comfortable with sharing their own stories. So let's say a speaker has done something in their life and then the speaker wants to share it with, with the audience. There are speakers that love doing that. There is other types of speakers which are not very comfortable in sharing their own story. They feel it as something private. They don't want to go there. And it's totally understandable. So I never push them to, to share their stories. I never tell them that, oh, my, you have to share your story because your, your story is brilliant. I think if the speaker is very experienced in what he or she is talking about, they're always going to find a different story of somebody else who has done a similar thing, or let's say of, of the other group of people that have done something extraordinary or something that is uh, worth telling the story about. So... I discovered the stories by having that kind of informal conversation at the beginning. And that in those informal conversations about what the people do during the day, how their day at work looks like, you can actually find potentially very interesting stories, especially the ones that speaker is not even aware about. Usually speakers don't think about certain things when they're preparing the talk. They feel as if those things are boring to the audience. And then my job maybe is to kind of tell them, no, this is not boring. This is actually the most interesting part of your talk. And you have to definitely have it in. I was working with a, recently with a scientist who is a biologist, but who actually the, tries to understand how we can build uh, biological spaceships, which will help us go into the space. And those ships will actually be a living organism that would adapt. So he's trying to mix biology with astronomy, with design and art, all of these different things. And for me, actually, the story that was very interesting is how his life looks at work when he has to speak with all of these different people. What are his challenges? He didn't feel like that's something that is very worth mentioning. Hmm. But for me, I think as an audience member, I think I never hear these stories of how is it that in one minute you're talking to a designer and then 10 minutes after you're talking to a biologist, like what kind of mental preparedness do you need to have? So for me, that's a story that is interesting that kind of also tells the story about you as a scientist. But you have to work on these interesting things. And that's something that for me is TEDx worthy. And these stories, either the speakers, they discover them themselves or in conversations with me, we kind of nail down some extra detail that, that they can use. Now, do you think that sometimes telling other more well-known stories are more impactful than personal stories? So for my, my talk coming up, the working title is Why No One Cares What You Do. Mm-hmm. And it's really at the end of the day about communication and how people don't care what you do as much as they care about the problems that you solve. And that's just in how you position it. So, you know, in referencing an example in my own life versus representing an example of Elon Musk and how he communicates or what he's doing, a lot more people know about Elon Musk and might resonate it. 
but my story also is particular to me and has an insight on on how I've discovered the way that I communicate. Mm-hmm. So do you think there's an advantage or disadvantage when it comes to telling your own stories versus other people's stories? Ah, it depends really on what your story is about. I mean, if your story is the only story you can tell to illustrate something, then tell your story. Don't tell somebody else's story. But if, if you have different options, try to see which story is more striking, which story is more, let's say, not expected. Because every time you listen to a talk, your attention is going to be grabbed by something that you don't expect. If you tell a story about, I don't know, how, let's say if I tell a story about me, I was not a good communicator and I was an introvert and I was raised there and blah, 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 blah. I mean, nobody's going to listen to my story because it's boring. It's like, oh, you were a kid once. Okay, you've grown up. I mean, what is interesting there? So Hmm. I could never stop talk like that, but I could probably find some other story in my life that was that was interesting, that maybe people can more associate themselves with. And also, because TEDx is both an offline and an online event, you need to understand who the audience is, at least keep them a little bit with you. And then for the online audience, I mean, we know that it's a very diverse audience, so there you need to talk to the world. I mean, that's like, for example, what Tomislav Perko did really well. I mean, he talked to so many young people that want to travel with almost no money. And he figured out that with his story, and he never he mentioned maybe a couple of other stories in his talk that were not his, but with his stories mostly, he was able to get to all these people because they realized like, oh, if he can do it, maybe I can do it, at least in theory. Then in practice, who knows? <laughs> so really having a sort of a, a gut check of, yes, you are targeting the audience that you were in front of, which has a certain theme for the event organizer. But at the same time, that offline event, when it goes online, you really have to understand that you're maybe speaking to a global audience, right? Yes. So you can definitely mention the Elon Musk as an example, but also you have to ask yourself, I think, how many other talks are mentioning Elon Musk? Right. Is the, is peop, are people like who are likely to see your talk online already maybe fed up with Elon Musk examples? It's like <laughs> when I watch some talks and they always quote Steve Jobs, I'm not sure if I want to continue to watch that talk. Maybe I do if the talk is really good. But if all the person can find is Steve Jobs as an example, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe they haven't done their homework. Maybe there are other great examples that are actually even even much better. But then a good storyteller is able to tell a story in such a compelling way to introduce me to a person I've never heard about in Indonesia that maybe has, I don't know how many kids and doing something extraordinary. Maybe he's a great communicator, but he's not really well known. And maybe that story serves much better the purpose for what you want to argue in your talk. I dig it. I like that. The idea of describing someone who you've never met in a compelling way so that that story could resonate way more than something that has maybe been overplayed. Yeah. Yeah. Because also like you're never going to describe, for example, Elon Musk as a father or or whatever. You're never going to go in such a depth of describing who he is because you assume that everybody else already knows who he is. But it's not true. Everybody has a different, let's say, tag for Elon Musk. So what I think in my mind when I hear Elon Musk is one thing, but what other people think about Elon Musk is a totally different thing. So maybe you don't have people on board on the same emotional level. But if you introduce a person that is not well known, you are able to describe them in the same way to everyone so that everybody's, let's say, on the same emotional involvement in your talk. So there is an advantage, I think, of having people that are not that well known. And especially when it comes to an international or global audience after the fact, And in a day where people are very polarized, some people can really love one person where a lot of other people can hate that person. And I like this concept of introducing a neutral emotional state 
where everyone's kind of on the same page of maybe more of an underdog or somebody who they haven't heard of, which makes it more likely to be shareable. Or um, there is a speaker who, for example, says, I have a new app that does I don't know what. And then it's a, they say like, oh, it's an Uber for blah, 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 fill in the blank. Like if people use Uber to make an, an analogy for their app, I always say like, no, don't do it. I mean, I'm not going to allow, <laughs> allow it because you're going to be undermining the value of your app or the value of your whatever product it is or your idea. There is no, no reason to compare with the most famous product out there because it's not adding anything to the story. And especially the TEDx audience, they don't really go to listen to talks to feel like, oh, oh, this is a new Uber. It's like, no, all these people, they actually know what the Uber is. It's totally fine. Let's try to describe as much as you can what your product does, because it's never just an Uber for something. I think it actually detracts more from the idea than what it adds. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the punchlines and comedy. What are your thoughts on incorporating comedy into a talk? Is it crucial? Is it case-by-case basis again. What do you think? I think it's a very good idea. I've seen people pulling it off brilliantly. I've seen people forgetting their jokes, which is totally fine. (laughs) They know they they forgot them. And I've seen people trying to deliver jokes and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't land. So my advice always to speaker is be yourself. Don't try to be funny just because you think you have to be funny. There are talks, and I then show them some talks that are totally not funny, but are totally relevant and totally good. So it really depends on the topic, on the speaker. You have to feel comfortable in your shoes. And I think that's, I think in coaching, that's the most important thing that I have learned in the past years is that I should never impose on any speaker any kind of golden rule. Hmm. There are some, say, uh, guidelines that you can use to become a better speaker or guidelines you can use to craft a better talk. But in the end, at the end of the day, it's not going to be me on the stage telling the talk, it's going to be them. So they have to feel comfortable and they also have to, their talk has to come off as something that is natural, that is spontaneous, even though it's well-prepared in advance. So let's finish up these tips about TEDx talking and uh, the coaching that goes along with it. When we're talking about starting and ending, I'd love to know your thoughts or some examples of some really creative ways that people have started. I know it's a case by case and we sort of touched on it earlier, but how do you help people find that perfect start or find that finish? I know you think that the finish is more important, but are there any silver rules, not golden rules, but things that people can use uh, as maybe starting examples when they're putting together their talk? For the beginning, I mean, what I think is the most important thing, and then again, there are some exceptions that break the rules, but those exceptions are so brilliant that they don't have to follow the rules. Right. Uh, <laughs> but for people that really trying to craft a good talk and to be interesting to the audience, try to think what is one specific thing with which you can create an unexpectedness in your audience. So right from the bat, like when you start to talk, don't start with, my name is Igor, and today I'm going to talk to you about, I don't know, uh, spaceships. Right. That's a no-go because then you already lost them. They're like, oh my God, okay, so this is going to be a boring talk about spaceships and who knows what. But try to start with a question or try to start with, I don't know, two different things or three different things your talk is going to tackle and that usually people don't know how you can put them together. So try to tell them, today we're going to talk about spaceships, uh, Nutella, and some third thing. And then basically you get their brains working, like how can you connect these three things? Hmm. Like get them interested from the start that they are willing to think. They're willing to stay on with you in the talk because they're going to be discovering something new. So take them on a journey. And the best way to take somebody on a journey is to not really give them the map, 
but kind of just show them the map in a, in half a second. So they see the map and the map is gone and then you are the map, but they know that they're going to go somewhere nice. So entice them into going on this journey with you. And the ending for me is more about understanding what is the thing you want people to live with. So the trick is always just rehearse this, the last, let's say two or three sentences you want to say and make them memorable. Make them memorable and make them short. Don't lose very long sentences which go nowhere. It really needs to be rehearsed. Because what I've seen is when people don't rehearse the ending, they say, I, I know how I'm going to end. It doesn't go well. Because you, when you're on the stage, you lose track of time. You lose track of, uh, of sense of where you are. You feel, you feel very excited. You, you feel the audience wants to hear more from you. So you continue giving them more information. So I think rehearsing those two or three last sentences to really nail down what you told them, repeating some of the most important things, but really make them short, the, the, those sentences, and, and you're good to go. So here's a quick question, and I've, there's a school of thought on either way. I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah. Having the final words that you say, say, thank you. There's a school of thought that you shouldn't do that and a school of thought that you should. What are your thoughts on the last words being, you know, thank you to basically let everybody know that you're done? I think it's kind of the same thing. My really personal opinion is same thing as the beginning. There are people who do it. It doesn't really matter. Their talk was so brilliant that it cannot really undermine the quality of the talk. But I think it doesn't add anything in the TEDx sense. Gotcha. So it's better to just end the talk. And if you really want to say thank you, wait for the, I don't know, five seconds, six seconds after your talk has been done. So people can really get those last words in them. They can process them, stay on the stage and then say, thank you very much. This was it. And then you leave the stage. But don't attach the thank you very close to the last sentence. I think that's the mistake. It's not a mistake to say, to say thank you after some time. It's totally fine. But leave the opportunity to the production to kind of cut that thank you out if they can. And also leave the opportunity to the audience to not focus on the thank you because then their brain is already on that and they will forget what is the last thing you told them. If you can go without a thank you, that's also fine. But yeah, I think during the talk, the breaking and the pausing is very important. But at the end, really, when you say thank you, it's, it's very important. I think that's great. So one of the things that you know I want you to leave everyone with is this concept that the event organizers should be coming to find you and your idea. Yeah. Tell me about that concept, because I know that some people go out there and they try to get TEDx talks. And your belief is you should have an, you know, if you have an amazing idea, they will find you. So maybe, you know, just to kind of wrap up the show, your thoughts on that. And then we will leave everybody to their devices to continue to come up with these ideas to share on the TEDx stage. I had a lot of experience with people who were proposing themselves as a speaker and they said, you know, I'm a brilliant speaker. I can do whatever you want. And I think that's for me, the wrong way to go is when you can say yeah, you can speak about anything, which to me as a curator or as a person organizing the event, it means you're not passionate about anything in particular. So you can just talk about whatever you want. So for me, that's, it's an approach that can work with some TEDx conference. And I'm not saying that all TEDx organizers are the same, but I think what really works well is that you really like any speaker out there or any professional out there for that matter, because not all TEDx speakers are professional speakers. Many of them, they don't really enjoy speaking or they don't speak too often, but you need to be good at something. And when you're good at something and you're, you really try to nail down on something even more specific than what you're usually working on, try to find something, some interesting idea that you can, that you can have and that can have some value for not only for yourself or people listening to you, but for the community as such. I mean, it really depends. If you want to speak at a university event, try to show 
how your idea can be of value for that community. Or if you're trying to speak at a, at a city event in a big city, try to find out first what kind of speakers that event selects. And it's totally fine if you send an email to the organizer. But I think the thing to avoid is to tell the organizer, look, like I'm, I'm a great speaker and I can speak about whatever you want. But instead, try to connect with the topic of the event and say, look, I have an interesting research I'm working on and I'd like to share something about the, the, the. Right. But what I was looking always at is, yes, the quality of the speaker, also because we are all volunteers when we organize. We don't have time to train every and each speaker into becoming an amazing speaker. We do the coaching and all, the, all this process. That's totally fine. But we do want somebody who has at least a little bit of experience uh, in speaking. But the second thing I look at is I try to check if the, speak, the speaker has some authority to speak on the topic it wants to tackle. So it's good to have some kind of references or something on some websites that talk about you, that you're really an expert in the topic you want to, you want to tackle. But try to kind of help the organizer understand what is the idea you can nail down instead of getting the organizer to think in, on your behalf what you can talk about. Gotcha. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have heard it here, and Igor has laid it all out. That's the entire behind the scenes from a TEDx coach, and it's really about having one idea and structuring a narrative that's going to communicate your idea in a structure maybe of three that might be the best. Still, three sections all focusing on one common idea. Using storytelling as the glue that holds everything together and is able to relate to not just your live audience, but the global audience once your talk goes digital. Making sure that you've got a punchline or two and not messing it up. And even if you do, hopefully you'll get a laugh or two. And then really focusing on a start that delivers something that is unexpected and finishing with something that is short sentenced and simple so that they actually understand the main point for the rest of their lives. And when it comes to it, don't try to pitch the fact that you can talk about everything. Have authority and speak to maybe one thing that you actually can talk about and pitch that fact to an organizer and they will do some cyber searching stalking on you. And if it all matches up, you might find yourself on the TEDx stage. Well, Igor, this has been fantastic. I really enjoy this. I'm gonna use all of this information in my upcoming TEDx talk and I'll probably hit you up separately to do a run through online and see what you think about it. How's that sound? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Let me know. When <laughs> It'll be soon here. Very cool. All right. Well, everyone, I hope that you are inspired today because if you have an idea that's worth spreading, the TEDx and TED stage is a great place to share it with the world. So get your ideas together, formulate it into one of the best ones ever that has not been overplayed. And then get up and find yourself on the circular red carpet on the stage. All right, this is Ryan. I'm out. Igor, again, thank you very much. And how do you? How would you normally say goodbye in Brussels? Uh, in Brussels, you would probably say it in French. So, au revoir. Au revoir. And au revoir to everyone else. And tune in to past episodes. And we will see you in future episodes. This is Ryan Fallen World Speakers with Igor, signing out. Bye, Igor. Bye-bye.